0: So I'll be reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of God. Amen.
1: Uh, thanks, Robert. Uh, thanks also, uh, Robert and Jean, for so beautifully uh, leading the music. Um, I'm Andres. If you didn't pick that up, uh, one of the teaching elders at the church, and uh, generally uh, Pastor Andres would be uh, taking the sermon. But uh, I have I have the pleasure of doing this uh, this. Uh, hard-hitting passage. So uh, let me add my welcome as well. Uh, hopefully you guys have a Bible with you. Uh, so here at, at Grace uh, Grace International, we do believe in exegetical preaching. And what that means is that we systematically work our ways through uh, the books. Uh, uh, often th- uh, that is uh, news that is uh, uplifting and strong and uh, wonderful. Uh, today's passage is all about our sin and our nastiness. So I'm sorry, uh, we're there in the passage and I'm bringing the bad news. But next week, Jetty will bring you really great news. So next <laughs> week, you got something to look forward to. Um, but anyway, the problem, as, as uh, Robert was saying, is is most of us actually believe that humanity is good. <laughs> You know, we, we like to believe there's a few bad people out there, but basically we think we're all sort of all right. Um, I, I remember a story. Um, there was a lady from Australia, and she went and did mission work in Papua New Guinea in the, in the deepest, darkest recesses um, uh, with some of these tribes that have never, never seen a white person. And she believed that everyone was good. She believed just people just needed a little bit of kindness, a little bit of love. And, and they will be good too. Um, unfortunately, her experience was not that. Uh, she went there, there were unspeakable things that happened to her, she witnessed child trafficking, she witnessed the cheapness of life, and she came back uh, to Australia totally embittered. Her worldview had been crushed. She realized when she saw the face of evilness that humanity And humans, deep down inside, are not good. You know, it's depressing to think about how bad and self-centred we are. We like to tuck that away. We like to sort of focus on all the good stuff we do and we tuck that bad stuff away. But today, as I said, unfortunately, Paul is bringing it home. He's bringing together the conclusion of this argument and he's He's showing us beyond reasonable doubt that no one can earn their way into heaven. So just like in a traditional English prison system where the idea was to break the man down uh, until he has nothing left, no more pride, no more arrogance, no more self-assuredness, then what Paul will do is build us up in the Lord. But today is the breaking down bit. So what have we seen so far in the book of Romans? So over three chapters, Paul has been building up this argument. In chapter one, Paul explained that the gospel is a message of salvation for believers. First for the Jews and then for the Gentile Christians. So the Gentiles basically is is a fancy way of saying anyone that wasn't raised Jewish. And And accepting the gospel is characterized by living in faith and not trying to uh, earn our way in. So what is this gospel that we keep hearing about? Well, basically the word gospel is Greek for momentous news. So it's some big news. There's a new president in Latvia. That's gospel. Um, The war started in Ukraine. That's gospel. The queen died. That's gospel. It's big news. Everyone sort of talks about it. Oh, that gospel just happened. But the gospel that we're talking about here is good news that happened millennia ago. And it's the good news of God bridging the gap between him and humanity. It's a gospel that has kept changing lives and still changes lives in today. But If it's about being saved from something in chapter 1, what are we saved from? I mean, most people go around thinking, "I I don't need to be saved. Well, we're saved from the natural consequences of our rebellion, which is God's anger and judgment. And why? Because mankind has moved away from its knowledge of God to a depraved mind. God has given us over to what we want, sin and debauchery, and we've done it in increasingly uh, style, increasing style. But it's easy again for us to think, lucky, you know, we're sitting here in Grace Church, we're pretty good. Lucky we're not like those people. But in chapter 2, Paul addressed a group of hypocrites who felt that way, who were judging the, the world for every sin the world was doing. But in the same time, they were partaking in the same behaviour. So there will be God's anger for those who reject God, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But wait a second. Don't the Jews have the law and they have God's favour? Don't they have this outward sign of circumcision that shows they're somehow right with God? In chapter 2, Paul explained that even if you break just one commandment, You are no longer right with God. Similarly, if a Gentile could technically keep every commandment, they could technically be right with God. So, does that mean some of us can actually work our way into heaven if we do all the right stuff? Paul concluded chapter 2 by explaining that not only do we need to follow every little bit of the law we also need to have that heart. We need to have that perfect heart, as Robert was telling us today. But there are some some still in Paul's audience that think, and some probably here today, that think, no, actually, if I was put on the cosmic balance, I reckon I'd be okay. So today we'll see three parts of the the sermon. Firstly, Paul will answer a few questions that the, the audience has and then he will wallop us with our, his big conclusion, and finally, we'll look at that bit of the preview that he gave in chapter one of the Gospel. So firstly, like a good speechwriter, Paul takes a moment and he turns directly to the audience, and he addresses the camera and speaks right to the audience directly. So there's a few a few last-minute questions before he wants to conclude. And Paul will give a taster answer to each of these questions, and he'll deal with some of these later on in Romans in more detail. Now, the first question that I wanted to raise is not in this passage yet, and Paul's sort of covered it already, but it's a question we often have. It's a question sometimes we feel a little bit ashamed about when we talk about uh, about God to other people. It's a question we also sometimes try to ignore. How can God condemn us for even just one sin? I mean, it seems a little bit unfair, doesn't it? You know, you have people like Hitler and Stalin that killed millions of people. And if I just do one single sin, I'm I'm, I'm in the same category. In Genesis, we are told God is the creator and we are his creation. Let me say that one more time. God is our creator and we are his creation. We may not feel like God's Lego construction or God's uh, pottery. And in modern times, we can sort of push that aside. But when we're out in the middle of the ocean and you feel the vastness of the ocean, or if you're in the middle of the desert by yourself, or on the top of a huge cliff or precipice, you you get a glimpse of how little you actually are and how big that creation is, all of which God made. In Isaiah 64, verse 8, we read, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. But... Paul already alluded to this fact in chapter 1, that in the midst of creation, deep down, we actually do know our place. But why require perfection? I mean, that seems a little bit unfair. I mean, we're only human. As we heard last week, you know, there are non-Christians who have done really great stuff. I mean, aren't they good enough? A friend of mine used to give a crass analogy, and sorry, I've used it lots of times, but I'm going to use it one more time. Now, today, uh, you guys are lucky enough, I have brought special water along. Now, let me tell you where it's come from. It has come from a spring deep in the Himalayas. The man that gathers it brings it down on yaks, which have been specially prepared to bring this water down in big vats. Then a a friend of mine, uh, Yevgeny, he then drives his car all the way from Nepal, all through all the wherever stands, all across the borders and brings it here to Latvia. And I have luckily one little vat. Now it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now, if you had to choose between this and Riga filtered water, what would you choose? I mean, Riga filtered water is pure, we all know that. But I mean, you know, from the Himalayas and the Yaks and all that stuff, it sounds good. But before you do choose, I need to add one little, uh, one little bit of information. Now, in some of the border crossings, uh, Yevgeny was telling me that uh, you sometimes have to wait days on the border. And if you get out of the car, they shoot you. So where do you go? Unfortunately, the only place he could go was in the vat. So this does contain a little bit of uh, Yevgeny's urine, okay? It's it's probably only a few drops in here, maybe five drops, maybe ten drops. Now, it doesn't sound so good anymore, does it? Only just with a drop of Yevgeny's urine in here that he's been sitting on the border with, you know? Even just one single drop, it doesn't sound good anymore, does it? And so too are God's standards. All sinners deserve wrath, except, except through the gospel. It almost sounds like there's good news here, but Jetty will give us, give us all of it. So, but in Romans uh, now, uh, where we come to is, is we come to some of the other chapters. So hopefully you have Romans 3 open and let's start with some of these questions. So, the first question that Paul uh, answers is verse one. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? So, some of this audience in Rome were raised Jewish. They're like, look, I followed all my law. I followed all the law on my life, at least the the big commandments. I've done the ceremonies. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I haven't really done any bad stuff. Now, you're telling me there's no advantage in that? Well, what good is it being raised Jewish? Verse 2, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. So it sounds like we're going to get a big list of advantages. First of all, I mean, Paul doesn't get to the rest. He will get to it um, uh, later on in Romans. But what the advantage is, is that they had the very words of redemption. The Jews had all the puzzle pieces. Just like if you grow up in a Christian household, it doesn't guarantee your salvation, but it means you have the puzzle pieces. They know God from his creation. They know the precious words of redemption that show, point us to Jesus right from the start. In John 6, verses 68 to 69, we're reminded about, about this. Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So a Jewish person would have grown up with Genesis, where the serpent crusher was told about to Eve and Adam right at the start. They would have read in Genesis 12 about the promises to Abraham of land and prosperity and blessing, and that all nations will be blessed. They would have followed the, the family tree, through David, through David's line, all the way down, looking for them as this Messiah. Paul himself is an example of this. He had all the puzzle pieces he thought he was right until he met Jesus and his worldview was blown. But then he was able to put all those puzzle pieces right uh, together. But Paul will uh, deal with this Gentile Jew issue later on in chapters 9 to 11. So what's the next question? Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? But wait a second, didn't they teach uh, us in Saturday school at the synagogue that even if we are unfaithful, God will still be faithful? How then can Paul say Jews uh, are not special in being saved? Of course God will always be faithful. He will never abandon his people. But Paul quotes... Uh, uh, a Psalm 51 to say, Not at all, let God be true and every human a being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. This was a Psalm written, Psalm 51, written by David as he confesses his sin with Bathsheba, as he confesses his murder, as he confesses his adultery, and he realizes that God's faithfulness is in blessing, but God's faithfulness also is in in cursing um, unrighteousness. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? To get back to the water analogy, what if this water, uh, so what if this, not, uh, this water with uh, urine in it makes this one more appealing? I mean, Riga water is great, but if we had to choose between the urine water and the non-urine water, we'd wanna choose the pure one. Is it wrong to choose the pure water? I mean, certainly not. We judge between the two waters. And if we can judge between two waters, what stops uh, stop which we did not create? What stops God from judging us who he did create? Now, verse 7. Some might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim, that we say, let us do evil that good may result. So just, if, just because there's more urine in the water, does it make the pure water any more pure? No, it's still pure. An increase in our sin doesn't make God more righteous. He's already perfectly righteous. So Paul uh, answers this question by throwing his hands in the air and saying, this is just a ridiculous question. It's just as ridiculous as me saying, it's all right for me to do terrible things so that good can come about. Yet we see this in totalitarian governments even today where people do terrible things with the justification that they will do good. But Paul will come back to this in chapter 6. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So through these first three chapters, Paul has shown the, uh, the guilt of the Gentile pagan. He has showed us the guilt of the idolater. He has shown us the guilt of the self-righteous moralist. And the unreached. And he has shown us the guilt of the good Jew. All are under the power of sin. Not one of us is good. And so Paul brings this argument together, quoting a bunch of different Psalms and Isaiah and focusing on each one of us so that none of us can actually say that we are good enough. But there is a problem, Andre. In all of this, we can understand that there is evil in the world. We can all point to Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pol Pot or Mao Zedong. However, still at this point, if we are honest with ourselves, as Robert was saying, we feel that we're good enough. You see, there's always someone worse in life. There is always someone who does, uh, who does something worse. I mean, the very fact that in Latvia, 85% of drivers think they are above average shows that we're not very good at estimating our own skills. We rationalize our own sin. We excuse our sin. We avoid dealing with it and we focus on the good stuff we do. So now Paul is going to deal with us. After dealing with every other group, he's going to come to us now. What about us? Verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Deep inside, without exception, we are not righteous. No one is righteous. Because of our sin and rebellion, we never naturally seek after God unless he draws us to himself. Everyone, without exception, has turned away. What what, what does that mean? We all naturally in our thoughts and words do not live for the glory of God who created us, the one and true living God. We live for ourselves. We feel that the universe should revolve around us and our needs, and like a car at the bottom of a lake, it's worthless. There is no one who does good. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 10, It is even worse news. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even the good stuff that we do is not ours, it is a gift from God. And if you think you are the exception, we are reminded that is not even one. Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. But what about our words? Paul continues his quotes, our throats are open graves, full of death and disease, sending the smell of death to other people. And yet we keep practicing to do even worse. We tell white lies to cover our butt. We criticize. We cut down. We gossip. We hurt other people with our words. We curse. We swear. We complain. And we are bitter about God. We are bitter about his creation. No one is righteous, not even one. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Where do we naturally go? We naturally go to doing the wrong thing. We shed blood by pulling others down so that we feel better about ourselves. We desire to ruin people who may cut in the traffic or cut in the queue with us. We delight in the pain and destruction of those that we think deserve it. And the way of peace? Well, just try to find 10 years in humanity's history where there are no wars. Just try to find a week in your own life where you haven't told the smallest white lie. No one is righteous, not even one. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is such familiarity with God. We feel he's like one of our friends. The one that has power and knowledge of every atom in the universe is just like one of our mates. In Psalm 36, from which this line was quoted, uh, it continues... In their own eyes they flatter themselves, too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject what is wrong. There is no sense of reverence or respect. We flatter ourselves. We take a better selfie. We take a different angle so that we look better. Maybe we touch up the photo before we, we put it on the, uh, online. We feel righteous. We sit on our phones every night looking through social media. Envy, scroll away. Envy, scroll away. Envy, scroll away. Ha <laughs> ha, look at that person. Their life is stuffed. Yeah, they deserve it. How good is my life? We cling to worthless idols. But the issue is that we forget that our sin is sin against God. He's not just a good bloke that we have a drink with or a coffee with. You know, we can't think, oh, certainly God would be happy with my sarcastic comment on the the line. No fear of God in our daily lives. But Andre, these things are such little things in the big scheme of things. Like It's not like murder or trafficking children or adultery. Adam and Eve's sin was taking a simple bite from a fruit. But the real sin was they were not trusting their Father. They thought they knew better. Just once. And for that they were cast out. For that they deserved death. How much more have we done than make just one little mistake? Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the words of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law makes us even more conscious of all the things that we do wrong. In Australia, when someone paints something in the public, they put up a sign, uh, wet paint, don't touch. What, what's the thing that we think about first when we see the sign? We, w- we would have walked past that wall without thinking about it, but put that sign on, we think, is it, is it really wet? <laughs> oh, maybe I should just put my little pinky just a little bit. You see, we had that in ourselves all the time. The law didn't create it. It just pointed out what was actually in there. So the law makes us conscious, that feeling that feeling deep inside, that we are sinful. No matter what our background is, we are not good enough. We are not righteous. If we live in sin we are not righteous. If we grew up in a Christian household, no one is righteous. Even if your family has been Christian for several generations, no one is righteous. It doesn't matter what charity work you've done or what volunteer work you've done or what amazing feats of goodness you've done in your life. No one is righteous, not even one. It doesn't matter if you read your Bible every day and pray every day. It doesn't make you righteous. We all deserve God's wrath. There is no way for us to redeem ourselves. Do you feel the way to Paul's argument yet? Do you feel like you need some medicine for this? Now, David Cook... Uh, an Australian preacher and theologian had a a little analogy. And he said, at this point in Romans, what you feel like is you go to a doctor and you say, look, I have fever and high temperature. And the doctor turns to you and says, well, here's a thermometer. Why don't you go home and measure your temperature three times a day and then come back to me and we'll see what happens. you would be like, no, give me some medicine. Tell me what I should do. I don't need to measure my fever. I know I have temperature and fever. We want the medicine. So what is this medicine for the disease? It's a medicine we all need. It's a medicine that will stop the consequences of sin in our lives right then and there, inoculating us for all time. It's a cure that our society and our country needs. It's a cure for greed for money, for hedonism, for education, for spirituality, for worshipping creation, not the created. It's a cure that all our politicians need to align them to the truth. It's a cure that social media needs to stop the negativity and the anger and the self-promotion and the cancel culture. It's a cure that your work colleague needs who works next to you It's a cure that the person sitting next to you in the lectures needs. It's a cure that will give a feeling of hope for the future. But if we are so unrighteous, how can we dare ask God for this cure? John Calvin said that true wisdom comes from two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So far in Romans, we have seen that God is righteous. He is a God who has revealed himself through creation. He is eternally powerful of a divine nature. God is angered by creation in rebellion. God's righteousness demands purity. He demands righteousness. And us? Paul has made it clear beyond any reasonable doubt I am not righteous, you are not righteous, no one is. So how can I, as an unrighteous as I am, how can you, as unrighteous as you are, come to a perfectly righteous God? There is a Christian joke about getting into heaven and this guy comes to the pearly gates and he meets St. Peter there and St. Peter says, well, why should I let you into heaven? And he says, well, you know, I have helped build three churches and three congregations in my time. Ah, not good enough. Um, I have read the Bible since I became Christian every day and, and faithfully I have prayed every day. Mm, uh, n- not good enough. Um, I've talked to all my non-Christian friends about the gospel and some of them have come to Christ. Yeah, not good enough. I've been a faithful husband and a great father to my kids. Um, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. And the man stops and he says, is the only way I can get into heaven is by Jesus' death and resurrection for my sins? And Peter says, yep, you're in, okay. Until we grasp the fact that it's nothing that we do that makes me good enough, we never will truly grasp the need for our repentance, the need for our reliance upon our Father and the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. Paul gave us a hint of what is coming next week in the second half of chapter 3. You're welcome to read ahead. It is the gospel. It is momentous news that changes us and makes us righteous. It's not by me being me. It's not by me following my dreams. It's not through my own effort in doing good. It's not through self-reflection. It's certainly not by me earning my way into heaven. It is coming to Jesus on my knees, broken and repentant, knowing that I am not good enough, knowing that I am not righteous knowing that I can't do anything but for his grace and his gift. Salvation is taking Jesus' hand as he extends it to us, as my Lord and Saviour, but also as my brother. So it is only through the faith of the grace shown to us by our Lord and Saviour, Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, where humanity's unrighteousness, where my unrighteousness, where your unrighteousness, was carried by Jesus as he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now that is momentous news. That. Is the great gospel that it is worth telling the whole world about. Let's pray. Father God forgive us for our sin and our depravity. We come to you without excuse. We come to you without righteousness. No one is good, not even one. Forgive us for what we are doing to your world and still our hearts by your spirit that we may put all our trust and hope in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ who took the condemnation that should have fallen on me. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his glory. Amen.